The thoughts and opinions on Just Some Podcast are of the hosts and guests and do not represent the views of organizations that employ them or they volunteer for. They are also not responsible for spontaneous black holes or nuclear wars that may occur. You have been warned. Welcome, 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 everybody, to another fun-filled and exciting episode of Just Some Podcast. This is Tom. Hey, this is Ben. Tom, man, it's been a little while since we've actually recorded a podcast episode, um, other than being on Greg's episode, which we're going to play before this one. So, (laughs) uh, how are things going, man? Things are great. I am super excited about tonight's episode. We have on a repeat guest, Mr. Eric, if you want to say hello. Things were getting pretty desperate. They brought me back for a second <laughs> podcast. That's right. <laughs> yeah. so what happens when you got to, you know, you got to dig into those big, uh, big name guests and get them back on. So I appreciate that. Do we have <laughs> anything else to do? Nope. Guess it's time to get Eric back. Absolutely right. I love it. <laughs> but no, things here are, I would assume, very much, well, similar to most other places, you know, dealing with the ramifications of the spread of COVID-19 and adapting to the new world that we live in, at least if maybe not permanently, at least for now, and trying to make sense of it all. Um, and, you know, As of we're recording this today, um, the state that I live in, which is Kansas, uh, the governor has released all restrictions, turned them into recommendations, um, and put it on the counties to... Um, enact any type of restrictions that they chose. And the particular county that I live in opted to also take the hands-off approach. Yeah, we're just, yeah. So the good Uh, old-fashioned, let's just pray for a good outcome method of uh, government? uh, It was basically that we'd not had a case in almost 30 days, so clearly it's gone, apparently. I'm assuming that's the thought process. I was not involved in the... uh, (laughs) In the decision making, but yeah, that's where we're at. And I feel for the people actually in leadership in some of these cases where they are in that rub of, well, we haven't had a case, but they're also going to be the ones responsible if Nana dies. So it is a uh, catch 22 situation. So I I do feel for them and I feel for everybody uh, here in Ohio a much denser population uh, group. So, you know, we, we still have plenty of cases going around, but overall, I think as a state, we have done well. We are in that transition. Um, We have not taken the let's yeet all precautions uh, that Kansas (laughs) has taken. And we are trying to phase reopening so that I'm assuming 
that it's supposed to be like a locking mechanism type reopen. So if all of a sudden there's a sharp spike, we've only we we've contained the outbreak. Yeah. We haven't just said, oh, by the way, here's a gas fire and just lit it. Um, we're trying to keep it compartmentalized. So, uh, again, I, I can't say enough. I think Ohio has done a great job. And maybe uh, we can get into this with Eric. It is just striking to me on social media the amount of people that are like, well, see, it wasn't that bad. I'm like, no. So we took precautions, said precautions worked. Yeah. And now you're taking as this was fake. And I don't know what type of psychosis that is, but I'm hoping Eric can fill me in on that. If maybe not during this episode, maybe off air, he can be like, dude, there's totally a word for it. And I don't mean ass bag. I mean, (laughs) there's an actual word. I think it's a struggle because you know, initial projections, I mean, we're just astronomical. And then we come in under the projections and we hit that grave milestone either today or yesterday of a hundred thousand today. Yeah. U.S. citizens who've died. Yeah. That we know of. That we know of. Yes. And and again, this is uh, it is terrible and it's terrible in every way because I feel bad for the people that they're they're still struggling to make sense of this. Like, I think that is a driving force behind some of the paranoia is their brain is trying to find a way to make this okay for them. And they're trying to make sense of a situation that they can't make sense of. So I feel bad for them. But at the same time, I don't think that gives them the right to also get on social media and be like, Bill Gates created this using 5G towers. I don't like I don't want to see that. The only people I have actually, though, got angry I don't want to say angry. Maybe angry is not the right word, but I certainly was not happy was people that were trying to compare this to like the Holocaust, like us making people wear paper masks were the same as hunting down Jews in Nazi Germany. And I was like, mm, no, that is one step too far for me, I think. So, but uh, how are, uh, how are things going where you're at, Eric? Oh, things are good. So, you know, I live in Missouri, which, which kind of reopened a little bit faster than Kansas, as you uh, know, if you read any national news, Lake of the Ozarks was a <laughs> very popping place this weekend. Enough yeah. So, enough so that our human resources department told us to self-quarantine if any of our staff went there. And so it, it's just kind of what you were describing earlier, Tom. There's just a polarity in thought process. Yeah. Which if you look just across any uh, any issue within the United States, there's just thought polarity. And there's not a growing middle. And I think that's what's so hard. And so COVID-19 is just another example of this. And I think there is a, I mean, there's certainly a, a middle to it, but I think the middle is not the loudest and therefore we don't notice it. I mean, the two polar opposites are the most loud. And then there's people in the middle who are like, well, no, it's not quite that crazy, but it's not quite that crazy either. There's Yeah. And like you're saying, Ben, I I think that's the truth. And I think the majority of people are in that middle. I think the majority of people in the United States have taken a very respectable measure to this. Like they didn't freak out, but they tried to social distance. Like they didn't go anywhere, you know, big for every weekend, but they also weren't letting them, you know, like this take over their lives. I think it was those spectrums or the far right, far left of the spectrum in this case, where people were either A, 
this is fake and I live in a free country so I can ruin your rights by trying to enact mine. And then there was the ones on the other side that were like, I'm going to wrap myself in bubble wrap and tinfoil and therefore the brainwaves uh, can't get to me. And I'm like, wow, you both need to take a back seat. So, yeah. Yeah. so uh, it's been a while. What do we uh, what do we do next? <laughs> Isn't there a thing you say somewhere yeah, in is. here? Yes. Yeah, okay. That would be the, the social media thing, Tom. Yeah. So <clears throat> you can find us on. Oh, I love it. Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube, all at Just Some Podcast. You can find us on the web or www.justsomepodcast.com. Our email address, admin at justsomepodcast.com. We are available on any place that you download podcasts, Spotify, iHeart. And then, Tom, we got notification today that on Chartable, we were ranked, uh, I think, 58th in the United States for uh, science podcast and then number 80 globally for a science podcast. So that was pretty awesome. So that is pretty awesome. Um, I hear Spotify almost negated the Joe Rogan $100 million deal to <laughs> sign us. <laughs> Guys, the real question that just keeps popping up in my mind is when am I going to start getting compensated for all these expert opinions that I'm generating? <laughs> the checks um, and- Sir, the check is in the mail. Thank you. Yes, <laughs> yes Eric. Um, do you have Venmo? Because I will uh, Venmo you a shiny nickel. So sure. I need go. about twelve ninety nine for my next Bushlight twelve pack. <laughs> I will. Uh, we will get right on that. Um, or or Bush Latte. Um, yeah. So. <laughs> yes. Um, ben, I also think that if they are going to do any Amazon shopping, they can go to our website. They can scroll down to just about the bottom. They're going to see a link. Click on that, our Amazon affiliate link. Before you do any of your shopping, go on there and do all the merchandising you want to do. And it helps us out and it costs you nothing. You won't even know we were there. So we'd appreciate that. We still have our COVID-19 fundraiser shirts on our website. So please check those out. 100% of those proceeds go to uh, First Responders First. Good Lord, I forget the name for a minute. Um, We will see none of that money, um, which is a good thing. We don't want any of it. We want it to all go to that charity who are still out there fighting the good fight. But while you're there, if you want to look at some just some podcast uh, merchandise, feel free to do so as well. Eric, anything you want to talk about? Plug. I've got uh, I've got nothing, guys. I think you're doing an excellent job. Okay, I would say just put your Venmo account out there. Maybe people will just randomly send you money. Hey, there was a there was a guy who made a whole bunch of money doing that one time. <laughs> Donated it all to children's charity. Uh, I forget which state, but it was an incredible gesture on his part. Wow. He legitimately just put his name out there. It was like, hey, send me money. And people did. Yeah, no, just, uh, he asked. Uh, it was like college game day for yeah, beer money. That. And people started sending him tons and tons of money. I think, I mean, tens, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars by the time it was done, donated all of it to a children's hospital. I can't, I don't remember if it's Michigan or mm. uh, I'm not sure. Yeah. And I think one of the beer companies kind of stepped up and bought him or donated a, like a year's worth of beer to him. Also. I do remember that. I'm going to look it up. 
that's that's pretty awesome. I saw speaking of college game day in Children's Hospital because I wondered if it was Iowa, because I remember them talking about stuff when they talked about Iowa has a new tradition. Um, I think it's between third and fourth quarter. The Children's Hospital actually overlooks the stadium, so everybody in the stadium turns around and waves to the kids. I was like, oh, hit you in the fields in the middle of a football game. That's that is a mixed emotion bag to be like. I want to feel like murdering somebody. But I am also choking back a tear. Like, I don't know what that is called. So, hey, Eric, what's that called? <laughs> Pseudobulbular affective disorder. Oh, okay. <laughs> or having emotions. I, I don't know. <laughs> to give some uh, background on that, since I looked it up while you guys were talking, it was a college football fan. He held up a sign on national TV asking for beer money. He raised more than a million dollars and donated it to the children's hospital. The sign said Bush Light Supply needs replenished. Um, and so it was in Iowa. And uh, yeah, he raised a million dollars. And then I believe that Bush Light stepped up and donated some beer to him as well. Uh, yeah, a year supply of Bush Light. Yeah. Yeah. This is just a shining example. And we see this all throughout COVID 19 uh, to kind of bring us back of what humanity can do for one another by just trying to do the right thing. Like uh, some of the videos for COVID-19, you're looking in Europe and you see all of these people applauding healthcare workers as they're getting off their shifts. You want to talk about like a kick in the feels, man, yeah. that is hard yeah. for me not to catch something dripping from my eye when I see that kind of stuff. It's incredible. Lots of cut onions when you watch those. Yes. <laughs> and honestly, as as angry as, you know, I may have sounded earlier talking about some of the stuff I see on social media, when you read the good stuff it is helpful to try and remember that not everybody is a shit bag when they're out there saying stuff about this. Like the majority of us are trying to get through this and we're trying to help each other. And we're seeing all those videos. And like Eric said, from around the world, like yeah, people, South Korea, you know, Italy, like you see all these videos of people doing stuff um, and just trying to connect in any way they can and, and still feel like humanity and still feel like human beings. And, it is a good thing to try and remember that not everybody's angry, that there are people that are they're happy to try and be good people. And I think sometimes that message is missed in lieu of trying to focus on the negativity. That was actually how I happened upon. I don't know if you've watched it or not, Tom, on YouTube. Um, John Krasinski and his some good news uh, that he started a couple months ago. And it was it was basically just he you know he was tired of all the bad quote-unquote bad news that was out there and so we started a new show of just good news and a lot of it was directed at healthcare and showing a lot of those videos and things like that um so yeah it was just it was awesome to see so much positivity and so much uh yeah appreciation and yeah so anyway before we get into our main topic with eric and talking about the mental health of covid tom do you want to do a story that we may have missed well, I feel like we should. I mean, it is an episode after all. I mean, <laughs> I mean, yes. I mean, there is this whole what's that word format that we try and follow when we do this thing. Yeah. Right, yeah. So, it feels like it's been forever. We did the uh, pop up live videos for so long that sometimes it feels like, oh, what are we doing? Like, yeah, how does this work again? So the story you may have missed, this was uh, released a couple of days ago. And uh, the title is How Better Home Hygiene Could Curb Antibiotic Resistance. Uh, this was an article that was uh, this was a published position paper in the American Journal of Infection Control on behalf of the Global Hygiene Council. 
Um, and some of the statistics that they talk about was that rates of resistance to commonly used antibiotics have reached 40 to 60% in some countries. And then they anticipate that to be uh, one in five by 2030. And by 2050, about 10 million people could die each year as a result of resistance to antimicrobial agents. And so, you know, the currently with COVID-19 and the focus being on hygiene, particularly in healthcare settings, they felt that it was a good time to put out a paper in regards to infection control and hygiene as far as that goes. The World Health Organization estimates that 35% of common infections are already resistant to current available medicines. And with that figure raising to 80 to 90% in some low and middle income countries. And so they talk about some of the importance of how to take care of things in the home. And the biggest one, Tom, hand washing. Shocker. <laughs> I, I know. Uh, here was the statistic that kind of made you go, Ugh. Um, about 19% of people wash their hands after they use the toilet. And the same paper found that hand washing reduces the risk of diarrhea by nearly one quarter in studies with good um, methodological design. Uh, beyond that, they talked about um, a 2014 study in Mexico found salmonella in almost all cleaning cloths. Um, soaking the dishes or the dishcloths in a 2% solution of bleach reduced the bacteria by 98%. Uh, they talk about some of the key strategies include, you know, being cautious with food handling, uh, contaminated chopping boards, kitchen sponges, um, changing diapers, coughing, sneezing, nose blowing, touching surfaces, caring for domestic animals, disposing of trash. And then the recommendations were uh, to use soap or detergent, um, alcohol-based hand sanitizer, uh, mechanical removal using dry wiping, um, heat, UV treatment, or a combination thereof. Tom, your thoughts? My thoughts are 81% of people aren't washing their hands after they go drop a deuce is what you just told me. So that's what's on my mind. That was a statistic that jumped out at me. Yes, sir. Well, I mean, honestly, I wish I could say I was shocked, but I'm really not. People take for granted that medicine can fix everything with a pill, which is a common conception we have talked about on the show. Yes. Though the resistance of antibiotics all those people that demanded Z-Packs prior to COVID-19. And now we're like, hey, Z-Packs might actually fix this, but not everybody because it's been overused. I wonder <laughs> I wonder how that's going to factor into things post-COVID when we go back. We're going to be like, hey, remember, this could have killed you because you demanded it the first time. So, no, I'm still not giving it to you. I wonder if that's a, uh, a smarter plan or, or if the public itself will actually factor that in. Like, hey. This is real. This is how things work. So I don't know. Eric, any thoughts? <laughs> Behavioral modification. I mean, we just go back to reinforcing the individuals. Hey, when you go do do, the next step is flush, <laughs> wash your hands. We just keep yeah. reinforcing that. And then eventually Perfect it'll catch in that on. order. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Don't go back and flush. I've got yeah, a two year old exactly. daughter. We're working on that right now. <laughs> yeah, no, I, uh, there's more than once. I, I'm pretty sure my seven year old has been trying to put a moat around the toilet so I can't get to it. I don't know. So yeah, <laughs> I under, I understand the struggle. I know Ben understands it as well. So just say, yeah, it. yeah. That's, so wash your hands and don't overuse antibiotics, which I know is a big thing for you, Tom. Not that you do it, but I mean, that's one of your, one of the things you're passionate about. Yeah. 
It is. So, I just in my head though, I just feel kind of bad for Eric's kid now. Eric's kid's <laughs> gonna try and lie someday, and he's gonna be like, "Do you really think that that's appropriate?" And that kid's gonna be like, "Oh God, what did I say? Like, what did I do?" <laughs> Man, it's just classic, do as I say, not as I do type stuff. <laughs> you know, when I talk with patients, I'm like, hey, you know, you should probably do this, like exercise and eat reasonable foods. Don't look at me as an obese dude. Like, you know, whatever. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Eric said, do as I say, not as I do. When we were talking about hand washing after number two. So, Eric, are you one of those 81%? <laughs> I'm a firm believer that I'm probably cleaner than a public bathroom sink. I'm just, I'm just messing. <laughs> I would say statistically, he probably is one of those 81%. So. Yeah, two of us three, you know, come on. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, that's a, that's a, yeah, there you go. All right. Well, that's our story that you may have missed, Tom. So, on that note, man, let's jump into our main topic and why we had Eric on the show other than to find out that he doesn't wash his hands. Just kidding. Let's Kinda. talk <laughs> Let's talk mental health in 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 the quarantine and in COVID. Uh, so I mean, Eric, what not necessarily what are you seeing, but I mean what from a mental health standpoint, what are, what are some things that we're looking at? Man, this is an incredibly large topic to dissect. Uh, during the pre-show meeting, we we kind of talked about how are we going to approach this? Are we going to approach this from a healthcare provider's perspective? Are we going to approach it from someone who's in isolation waiting for the results? Or uh, what, how are we going to slice this as we're having this conversation? And I think regardless of, of which perspective we want to look at it, I think the most important thing we can do is look at this thing and accept it for what it is. This is something that modern healthcare has not seen. This is something that is invisible, that's silent, and killed a whole bunch of people overseas before it got to us. Yeah. And so we have just enough information to say, holy crap, something bad's coming. Or maybe even, holy shit, something's bad hap- something bad's happening. What are we going to do about it? And yeah. then just the, the ramifications from that Afterwards, we talk about anticipatory anxiety in the behavioral health world as a significant challenge, as as uh, something that that drives agoraphobia, that drives panic disorder, that drives a whole lot of other things. The the fear of what is to come, man. We saw that as a nation uh, for COVID nineteen, and, and we're still seeing it now. Knowing that, and I I know for Ben and I, we had uh, you know meetings and plans for the hospital in the mental health world was there a a playbook that you guys were trying to develop for things that you thought would develop due to COVID-19 like did you guys also have a plan for your surge in patients because of COVID-19 well I, I think realistically the surge of patients is coming but one of the things that and you know I can't speak for all the organizations across the United States but but one of the things that uh, where I work in southeastern Kansas plug community health center we recognized that anxiety associated with COVID-19 isn't going to only happen uh, Monday through Friday, 8 to 5. Uh, one of the first things that we did was we created a behavioral health call line uh, where nobody got paid any extra money. It was all clinicians that we had on board. And we all said, y'all are going to be available. And we're going to be available 24-7. If someone calls a phone number, we're going to be there to answer it. And this was my addiction treatment staff. This was my psychiatry staff. And this was my psychology staff. Um, you know, Tom, you had mentioned earlier about 
administrative roles or executive roles. I don't, I don't know if you guys know this, and I don't know if I was at the time I did my last recording, but I'm actually the director of behavioral health services uh, 50% of the time and about 70% of the time I see patients. And so it is a challenge from an administrative perspective. And there was no playbook. Um, if we think about what behavioral health services have been over the last, oh man, 20 years, there's been an incredible, there's been a better understanding of what all this looks like. Prior to that, when we would see global global pandemics, when, when we think about HIV AIDS, when we think about Spanish flu, uh, mental health was on the back burner. Um, so this yeah. was really, and it still is, uh, this is, this is going to be an incredible challenge uh, for the behavioral health providers out there, not only taking care of the patients struggling with COVID-19, dealing with systemic effects of what this does to our healthcare worker, uh, what this does to our survivors. And I, and I think it's, it's still yet to come. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely a once-in-a-lifetime um, event, or at least I, mean, I guess you hope. I hope. <laughs> yeah. So did that line get, I mean, not obviously getting into specifics, but did that line get utilized quite a bit then? You know, uh, oddly enough, uh, the people who called called Monday through Friday, eight to five, <laughs> as wild as that sounds. So, uh, of course, I would never ask anybody to do something that I wasn't willing to do. So I signed up for every Friday and Saturday night uh, because I didn't want to impact my staff. And so I, I was on call every Friday, Saturday night for about, let's say, eight weeks, six, eight weeks. And, you know, the phone calls I got, man, they weren't related to COVID. They were related to, man, I lost my dad last week to, to cancer. And I'm not doing okay. Huh. And so that was a reminder for me. And I think it should be a reminder for all of us that as we're dealing with this incredible pandemic, as, as we're dealing with this invisible thing killing us, man, we still got all this other shit going on. Yeah. I, I was going to say that's a really good point is we got so consumed. I, I think from at least the planning perspective, we got so consumed with we got to make sure everything's ready for COVID-19 that we forgot, hey, you know, the rest of this doesn't stop right. because COVID's coming. And I, I think it's interesting because I've heard Eric say the word invisible a few times. And I think for us in healthcare, I can deal with the things I can see. Like a priority one trauma patient comes into the ER. I know it's gory but I can see him and I can touch him and I can manipulate him. And that's a human being that I can take care of when you're taking care of a patient. Now, sometimes you're, you're sitting there going, is this person infecting me? Like there's no way to tell. And that is one of the, the terrifying factors for me in healthcare has during this crisis, I should say has been, Hey, and I try and remind myself of the statistics, just like I do the patients. Like, realistically, let's look at this. We've taken the precautions. Even if we did get it, it's got a high survivability rate. But it doesn't stop me from remembering that it is, in fact, fatal, that there are other complications. And lastly, I can't fight it. I can't touch it. I can't do anything to stop it if it's actually here and it somehow gets behind that precaution. So I, I think it's interesting that he said invisible because that's how I feel is like, oh, God, I can't I can't stop it. Like I physically would have put up my hands, but I can't and it wouldn't work. You know, I had this thought going coming into work the other day as I was walking into the building and I thought, you know, we spend as a country, we spend billions of dollars on the military and and military defenses. And trillions. then we're attacked, or trillions even, and then yeah. we're attacked by an invisible virus yeah. that none of us seen. I mean, 
both literally, literally and figuratively, none of us seen coming. Uh, it, that just kind of blew my mind for the brief minute as well as I was walking into the building. Well, again, and I'm not trying to throw out a political thing. I just know that there have been agencies for the United States that that was their job was to say, hey, we're trying to think of things that we can see. And since they didn't seem important, their funding has always been in danger. I'm not saying under just the current administration. Every every administration has whittled away at money somewhere. And these people that work with the invisible when it wasn't a national or a, a world pandemic have always seemed to be the focus of having to fight for funding. And now we see why they are that important. And I, I hope it's a lesson learned and I hope it's something we don't have to repeat. So I want to make a statement and then I'll segue into a question for Eric. Um, you know, you're talking about the cutting of the funding. Um, I seen that on a personal level when I did emergency preparedness. Because as the emergency preparedness person, your job is to try to think of everything bad that could possibly happen and then develop a plan for it. Well, after 9-11, there was tons of money in for terrorism, yeah, for terrorism and, and for preparedness. And then over the course of 15 years, that money dried up because it wasn't in it was in people's in, in the not in the, uh, you know, in the forefront and so I think that's probably a very similar thing. So then my question then becomes with this being a, a pandemic on this global scale, Eric, do you, I mean, does this almost become kind of like a disaster in the, in the way that you handle things from a mental health standpoint? Yeah, uh, Ben, that's a, that's a great question. I, I think uh, without a doubt, this could be of disaster proportions because to get back initially to Tom's question, I had thought of something else uh, uh, to answer and then I'll hop back on Ben's. You know, Tom, when, when we were thinking about what's behavioral health going to do, how are we going to respond? One of the incredible things about uh, where we're at is all of our organizations got together uh, regardless of, of who you work for. And they said, Hey, this is potentially what could happen. This could be potentially the flood of patients. We can't staff we can't staff the emergency departments. We can't staff the ICUs. And so from a, uh, a facility, from our organizational standpoint, the email that was sent out was, are you willing to go work in the hospital? And if you are, what can you do? And that was across the board. That was our psychologists. That was our addiction counselors. Those are, what can you do in the hospital? Whether it's pumping a bag every six seconds, what can yeah. you do? Because uh, ultimately... Um, that's what becomes a priority is keeping that person alive and keeping those people alive. And we have to unfortunately deal with the ramifications of that, including the mental health after the fact. No, I, that's a very similar plan. I would assume something like that happened where Ben was at, but that's literally pretty much the exact for me being prior ER. I was actually, and I don't want to say excited because I didn't, you know, want to go catch COVID-19, <laughs> but I was like, hey, you know, I'll get to go back to the ER, even if it's for a couple of weeks. It almost felt like, for lack of a better term, vacation like, like, hey, I would have to go back to an ER. I'm going to get to go do ER things. It was funny to watch some of the other people that had not really been in those types of situations like hey why don't you come to er with me and they were shitting their pants that oh. was pretty fun <laughs> oh man just imagine so i'm a, of course an old er trauma nurse i worked at a level one trauma center here in southwest missouri and uh 
uh, same thing. You, you know, I'm in the behavioral health world where it's like all these people have been in offices most of their careers or yep. training. And I'm like, all right, well, I'm I'm an old ER nurse. I don't think there's such a thing as an old ER nurse. You're either an ER nurse or you're not. And whether or not you're working yep. in the ER nurse doesn't make you not one. So, yeah, com- completely agree. Uh, but but to get back to, to Ben's question, no, I, I think I think if we're not careful, the disaster is going to happen. Um, when we think about diagnostic criteria for PTSD, it, it's not actually after you receive the trauma exposure, then you're diagnosed if you have symptomology. There's a six-month window. You have to maintain symptoms for six months before you qualify for the diagnosis of PTSD. And I think that's important to note. Because what we're all going through right now, what some of our, our frontline people, our ICU nurses in New York City, our ER physicians in, in large cities, what they're going through right now is an adjustment disorder. They haven't met criteria for PTSD yet because we haven't seen the duration of symptoms. And so I think the most important thing that we can be doing from a national perspective is providing debriefing and support services now, not later. Actually, it would have been great if we would have done this damn thing six, six weeks ago, but doing it now to prevent a disorder from happening, I think is the most important thing. I don't think there's any way that we can potentially implement that for the amount of lives that have been impacted. So, yeah, absolutely. There is a potential disaster brewing in the behavioral health world. So to build on the question I posed to you earlier about an influx of patients, is there now or has there been any talk in the mental health world of what we're going to do for all the affected healthcare workers that are going to need this? Like, I guess, is there a plan? Are they going to be, I don't want to say identified differently because we're, we're all patients at that point. But what I'm saying is, is since we know directly at a national level, what the trauma was like, is there any different approach to getting those patients seen, et cetera, or anything like that? Tom, you know, there's been well-documented cases of uh, increased risk for PTSD, other trauma-related disorders for some of our frontline workers in the ER and the ICU. You know, that's been well-documented throughout the years. I, I think the challenge, I think the challenge for this is from a national perspective, there's no way that we can come up with these plans nationally. I think it really falls on the organization. But here's the two challenges with that is one, it's going to take a financial investment from the organization after they just got their asses kicked financially for the last three months. Yeah, That's a challenge. And that's really going to open some eyes regarding who you work for. Uh, and, I, and I think any healthcare provider listening to this, take that as a home point. Who do you work for and what are they willing to do for you despite a financial loss that they're going to take on top of the massive one they just took? Secondly, man, what do you do? What do we, what do, we do with a flooded behavioral health world that's already so, so full with patients because we're understaffed? Uh, as much money as we're funneling into the behavioral health services, it's never enough. What do you do? Do you, do, do you remove restrictions for nurse practitioners and physician assistants? Yeah, that'd be awesome. Uh, <laughs> do we increase restrictions for our licensed professional counselors that may need supervision in certain states? What about our addictions counselors? Our licensed addictions counselors in the state of Kansas require supervision from a licensed certified addiction counselor. So it's like trying to find a unicorn to supervise a zebra. And so as much as, as much as some of the legislation is, is there to protect and ensure academic rigor and ensure quality of care that we're providing, sometimes we just got to respond 
And one of my flaws is a lot of times I respond and I think things out as I go. Uh, and I, and I think that's also one of my strengths. And I think from organizationally, and when we're looking at services for those healthcare workers, man, we just got to find a way to make it happen. And we worry about some of the rest of it later. That's the ER nurse in you is let's deal with this now. Let's deal with this problem. And then, you know, once they're stable, we can deal with all the paperwork and bullshit and stuff later. <laughs> sure. Yeah. So and, and I was going to say, honestly, though, I, I don't know about your organizations, but especially like, let's say in the rolling out of telehealth, um, there was a lot of things we didn't know. We weren't sure how we were going to accomplish it. And I will say it seemed for a minute, like everybody said the same thing, cut, cut the bullshit red tape, just make things happen. We will figure out billing or all these other things later. And honestly, for a minute, it felt really good to practice medicine again because it was like not that i don't ever enjoy it but it was like wow this is what it could be like if i didn't have to deal with bullshit every day like i just got to do my job and i didn't have to worry and we they just trusted me to do the right thing and we would make the right decision as soon as we could and i agree with eric i think that needs to be the mindset going forward it's like we have to find a way to make this happen i just I also agree with him. I don't know how to do that when the entire country has just took a shot in the shorts over, over this financially. I mean, th there is no there is no doubt that we're going to pay a certain price. So making all these things fit together is going to be painful. And one of the one of the groups to think about, too, is what about all of our travel nurses? I was going to mention that. Yeah. yeah um, what about those travel nurses who really don't have a home organization? They respond to New York City, of course, for the financial incentives, but also because it's desperately needed and, and nurses respond when they're needed. What about those folks? How do we get them treatment when they may be leaving New York City and going back to live in Wyoming? And the organization that they worked for is moved on to another travel assignment. And yeah, there's not that there's not that, that background to it as far as, as like you said, what the organization can do for you because you have fit, you fit the purpose that they needed you for. And now they're done with you. Yeah. Well, I mean, if it's Wyoming, it's probably involving like, I'm going to ride a horse and smoke a cigarette and stare at the mountains or something. I don't know. Like wearing an all white suit with a cowboy hat on. Exactly. Like I got fringe and a shot of Jack Daniels. I don't need no nothing. And then just move forwards. So wait, 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 that's, did you guys hear that? That's all the people who listen from Wyoming <laughs> logging off right now. Yeah, I know. <laughs> no, they, they can't do that. They have to go to Utah to get their internet service. So they, okay, they're good. not dropping off. <laughs> they're not getting off that quick. So. <laughs> so, so Eric, from a, so from a mental health standpoint, when you're talking increased anxiety, not necessarily even in just providers or, or healthcare people, but just patients in general. I mean, what are some things are we, are, do we go strictly counseling? Do we go a combination of medication and counseling? And if you do, what I mean, what are some medications that could potentially help benefit in this situation? Yeah, so there's a lot of interesting information out there regarding how we can prophylactically treat for PTSD. And in fact, I don't know if you guys are familiar with any of uh, any of these uh, recent studies, but you know, in 2015, um, there was a, a study published that examined the use of beta blockers believing that it could actually help reduce 
the likelihood of you developing PTSD. So, so do we just run around and prophylactically treat people with beta blockers? <laughs> no, of course not. Um, but, but when we look, when we look at that first six months, I, I think therapy's got to be. I think therapy's got to be the treatment. I think debriefments got to be the treatment. And that's a that's from coming from a guy who who does most of his work prescribing medicine. Because if we can prevent a disease from happening, if we can prevent PTSD from happening, damn it, shouldn't we try? And so, I mean, I think that's uh, front, coming from me and, and uh, you know, I'm not the guru in all this stuff. I'm no national expert, but I definitely think that debriefment and psychotherapy is something that we need to be doing. And here's the good news. There's a hell of a lot more therapists out there than there are psychiatry providers. That's true. It, and so if, if we find ways to help to help serve those folks, I think definitely we could. I think the biggest thing when we're looking at immediate effects is, is managing sleep. Uh, we still have to be able to take care of ourselves physically. So for a lot of my folks, whenever they come in after they've recently experienced a trauma, I actually don't initiate an SSRI, which would be a first-line treatment for PTSD. I initiate something to just help control sleep. And whether it's utilizing prozosin or trazodone, and there, there's even some Atarax that looks at reduction of nightmares or reliving experiences associated with trauma exposure. I think it's just getting them to sleep is incredibly important. Making sure they're eating, making sure they're having social connection, that they're not isolating, uh, which is incredibly difficult when we tell everybody, don't go near people. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of a catch-22 there. I mean, it's like... You need to be social, but not too social. <laughs> sure. Yeah. I don't want this to come across as I'm bashing any particular group. So do you think there are potentially lessons to be learned from either the way the military handled or didn't handle PTSD, particularly in veterans coming back from like war? You know, could you hear statistics like, you know, every 22 seconds, um, you know, a veteran commits suicide. So, I mean, are there things that we in the behavioral health world or, or family practice world can take from things that the military has done to improve our patient population? Well, uh, a very good friend of mine, he's been in the military since we graduated high school. Um, and every time he comes back from a tour, and, and I know I'm beating a dead horse now, but he has debriefment. And whether or not that he chooses to be forthcoming when he has his debriefment or our military personnel choose to be forthcoming when they have their debriefment, they still have it. And it's, it's, I mean, sometimes a week long, maybe even longer, depending on the shit that they got into on deployment. And so I don't think there's, once again, any substitute for just having that conversation of, man, what you went through, what you saw was absolutely terrible. And it's completely okay if you can't handle that right now. We've got to make it somehow to where you can handle it long term. And I think that's one of the things that we, we failed at. Also, recognizing PTSD or, or trauma exposure, and, and I know this is going to sound uh, super, I don't know, like hippie, smoke doobie, whatever. <laughs> you know, trauma is whatever the patient says it is. And so, Ben, just because I go through something horrific doesn't mean that I'm going to have PTSD or that's going to be a triggering event for me. We have to understand that each patient's unique from a biopsychosocial perspective. And so 
Ben, what may be traumatizing for me may not be traumatizing for you. And as clinicians, we have to be okay with that. And we have to say, hey, for now, I'm going to take you at face value. Well, I'm going to forget about the secondary gain that comes along with a diagnosis of PTSD and disability and manipulation of the system and all that other bullshit that drives me crazy because I see it every day. Yeah. But I'm going to give you the benefit of the doubt. And man, I'm going to freaking treat you to the best of my ability. And if that means referring you over to quality therapy, then that's what I'm going to do. Do you foresee a major uptake in a diagnosis such as PTSD or anxiety or depression or all three? Like, what do you see, especially us? And, and, I, and I mean, I want you to tell me from your perspective in mental health, but like Ben and I are family medicine. Like, what am I going to be running into in the next couple months to a year? Sleep. What do you expect? Yeah. So the what's going to present to your office is uh, they're going to come in and say, doc or nurse practitioner, I'm not sleeping. And that should trigger all of us to ask why. And that is such a simple question, but we miss it so much. Why aren't you sleeping? Because here's the, here's the struggle. If I prescribe someone with PTSD symptomology, mirtazapine, or amitriptyline, I could actually potentially worsen their nightmares. Hmm. If they're not sleeping because they're having nightmares, then that's a big freaking thing that we need to address. I may not need to put them on a sedating medicine. Prozosin is not a sedating medication, but it removes the nightmares and allows someone to have a full night of sleep. We no longer experience that terminal insomnia. You know, when we see anxiety disorders, we see a lot of initial insomnia. Um, and so Rimron and, and Trazodone would be, would be helpful. But if I could make one recommendation to my family practice peers out there, I'd say sleep and ask one extra question. Uh, get their history, get all their, their complaints, and then ask them one extra question and figure out what you find. To answer the first part of the question, I, I don't believe that we're going to see an uptick of PTSD diagnoses. I, I don't, uh, there's going to be some bad apples out there that try to take advantage of this situation as well. But in full disclosure, if we look at PTSD for what it is, you're going to be hard-pressed to find a patient on my caseload that you don't have to ask the question, uh, do they have PTSD? Do they not? Because so many of these symptoms overlap. Uh, and a lot of people who are already in the mental health realm have trauma exposure. And they come from horrific homes uh, they, they've done terrible things previously in their life and they have regret. Um, they've been through shit. So I, I don't think we're going to see a huge uptake. So you mentioned about the biggest thing we would be seeing is sleep. So, and you're, and you ask about, we need to find out why they're not sleeping if that's what they come in for. So is that part of your, say your initial assessment when you're seeing somebody is, do you specifically ask, are you sleeping well? And yeah. Okay. Yeah, so as nerdy as it sounds, and, and I'm sure if there's other psych NPs that listen to this, are probably rolling their eyes right now. I, I take a lot of students. I'm kind of a purist when it comes to a diagnostic evaluation. And if a major mood disorder, I try to hit every single diagnostic criteria within the DSM-5. I use you know acronym SIGI caps and dig fast when I'm looking for a major depressive disorder and bipolar disorder, uh, PTSD, and then any psychotic disorder. Those are the four that I hone in on every single time. And because that can change the way that we are going to be treating folks. And uh, so I'm spoiled. Like I said, I get an hour with my intakes, guys. I, uh, I ask those questions. And 
At every follow-up appointment, I ask energy, sleep, concentration, and appetite. Those are the four things I ask at every single follow-up appointment. I have patients who have seen me for years now, and they'll just be like, I'm sleeping fine. I'm eating fine. I'm concentrating fine. I want to go home. I'm fine. And I'm like, okay, well, see you later. Like, yeah. And I think implementing it in your own way uh, is super important. Like, of course, you're not going to you're not going to do a follow-up appointment like Eric does a follow-up appointment. You're going to do it like you do it. And I think that's important right. for every practitioner to hear. So don't worry, Eric, I was rolling my eyes for them. Yeah. Thank so. you. Thank <laughs> you. I, I knew there had to have been one out there, probably the same population that's not wiping after pooping. So I'm just saying. <laughs> so you mean 81% of people were rolling their eyes at you. Yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Now. Right. I, I'm so, being a sheeple at this point, so I'm fine with that. So, so you mentioned several times debriefings and how yeah. important they are, and so we ha- we do have a lot of non medical people who listen to our podcast. I mean, so can you just take a few minutes and just kind of explain to someone who's not medical what debriefing is? Yeah, 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 absolutely. So that's just a fancy term to talk about the shit you just went through. Uh, I think uh, typically it's led by some behavioral health person just so they can be aware, but just to kind of talk and to open the platform. And sometimes, you know, we're not going to volunteer vulnerabilities. And so that, that person who's doing the debriefing, who's leading the debriefing really sometimes needs to ask probing questions to get a dialogue started. And so that, that's kind of what the debriefing is. One of the things that Tom said earlier, and I just kind of laughed about it is, you know, when he's thinking about, Hey, I'm seeing this patient, are they going to make me sick? And that's the question that all of us are asking ourselves, right? And yeah. then so what does he do? He goes through the process of cognitive restructuring. That's the fancy term for it. He went through the, okay, so I'm worried that I'm going to get sick. Let's run the probabilities of that happening. Okay. Well, if I do get sick, what's the odds of it actually being lethal? And so his analytical side of his brain is able to say, okay, the overall risk is pretty low. It's going to kill me. So I'm going to keep showing up to work every day. But that's someone who has control of their analytical brain. That's someone who's educated in what's going on currently. And that's someone with a medical background. Think about all these folks who don't have that. It's also a person that likes money, Eric. <laughs> sure. So. Then that's, that's probably a big thing too. Yeah. I was just impressed, Tom, that you were able to, you know, I'm a cognitive restructurer, yo. Yeah. <laughs> Boom. I'm going to throw that term out a lot. So just get ready for that. Yeah. Yeah. Like I happen to know I'm doing some cognitive restructuring. (laughs) I can't wait to say that to my wife. I'm like, I'm going to cognitively restructure how I'm about to answer your question. So hold on a second. (laughs) Probably better than we do. Yeah. Yeah. So what do you think long term? Let's not. So we're talking, you know, the next couple of, of months or even six months out, let's, if you had a crystal ball, let's look five or 10 years down the road. How much, I think from a patient perspective, as in not a healthcare person, I think it's going to be, it's not, they'll be onto something else. From a healthcare perspective, do you think there's still going to be people who are having issues processing shit that they've went through? Oh, sure. I mean, when we think about, how these people die, not being able to breathe. I mean, uh, Ben, I don't, I don't remember your nursing background, but I'm sure Tom has seen it and I know I've seen it. And frankly, that's one of the reasons why I left the emergency department 
is to watch people try to live and fail. Yeah, no, ER. Yeah, yeah I, I think that's, is that, I mean, you've seen it. I think that's just an incredible thing. And for non-medical people, I hope they never have to see it. I hope they don't ever have to see a loved one go through it or they don't have to pull up on a on a, on a rack and see it because, um, yeah, I mean, this is all stuff that's going to stick with us. And, and man, I'll tell you some times when I was in the emergency department, I still think of that shit sometimes. Oh no. I, yeah. I, I think it will stick with us. I think, um, I think we're not going to be, I think it's always going to be in the back of our minds forever. What Tom said is it more so than it already is. Is it, is this person going to make me sick? And, and I think that it will influence um, the amount of PPEs that we're using. I think it will influence not cutting corners when we're, when we're doing review of systems questions. And from a mental health perspective, I mean, I, I definitely think it could increase anxiety. Um, and sadly, maybe contribute to, pro- contribute to provider burnout. Look at the problem we already have across the nation is we've got providers committing suicide. Yeah, We've got medical students committing suicide. We've got Man, we've got nurses committing suicide. There's a there's a story out of Italy, and I don't know if you guys had the chance to review this. And I know there's some people out there, and hell, I don't even know if it's credible because I, I don't know if I can believe the shit that I see nowadays. But right, man, there was a story about a nurse in Italy who got diagnosed with COVID nineteen, and she killed herself. I do remember hearing, yeah, remember hearing about to that. prevent the spread. How do you, how do you unhear those stories? And so I, I think. I think when the next thing comes, I think we're all going to take a collective gasp. We're going to say, man, is this, is this bad flu, another COVID? And I think we're all going to be a little hypervigilant. And I think we're all going to have symptoms of PTSD. Now, we may not meet diagnostic criteria for it, but we may, we're going to have symptoms. And that could be a benefit or a detriment. And I think in, in the medical field, or lately, I used to tell people in the ER, we were really good at compartmentalizing. You know, and so you put that shit in a little box and you put it in the back of your brain. And then when you're driving to work one day, you know, four years later, then you start crying because some shit that you remembered from when you worked in the ER for four years ago. And, and so I, I, I do think that we'll see a lot of, particularly those who are on the front lines. I mean, I think that'll be the compartmentalizing of it. And then your brain just decides some days, you know what, today we're going to open this box and deal with yeah. this. Sure. The hard part is we've only got so much storage space and I think that's the challenge. And I think that's why, once again, I come back to debriefment and getting therapy now for any medical provider who may be struggling right now, go find someone locally because we've only got so much storage space to shove all these boxes because eventually it's going to hit us one day and it's not going to go away. If we don't address this now, regardless of how good we are at compartmentalizing stuff, when we see, man, this stuff, when this kind of thing coming, man, go get help now. Don't don't take the chance of it not going away later. I think that's a good segue. We'll just throw this out there real quick and then I'll give, turn the mic over to you, Tom. Uh, you know, he's, he mentioned if you, you know, if you're having thoughts and, you're, and you need help, the suicide hotline is always available 24 hours a day. That's 1-800-273-8255. Tom, go ahead. Sorry. First of all, thank you for throwing that out there. I think it's always important that people know that that is a resource and it's always available. And those people are dedicated to trying to help you. Like, so if you are having those thoughts, I really think that people should use that number. And you're worth the help. 
Yes. I hear that so much. So I always hear this, man, so many other people have it so worse than I do, blah, 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 blah. That diminishes the idea that you're not worth receiving help in every single one of you are. And we've talked about the ER side and I did ICU as well. And I think it was two different types of, and I'm just saying this because I want people that aren't involved in healthcare to understand this. And I want people that are in healthcare to think about the different perspectives. I felt like an ER, it was a crash and burn. Like I only had this patient for 30 minutes. We did what we could and we lost them or we didn't lose them, etc. You know, we, we did our thing. Sometimes yeah. it lasted an hour or two, but it was a very short duration. Right. Versus ICU, I might have had this patient for a week every day. And I was with him for 12 hours a day. And every day I watched him go down. And there was just it was literally nothing I could do. And the family watching. Yes. And what and getting to know the family and watching a slow burn. And I think I I don't I think that's on the personal level. Again, going back to some of the things that just seems to make me angry. Of course, I think everything makes me angry. (laughs) But when (laughs) when I'm watching or I'm reading stuff on social media, I'm not trying to discount another person's perspective, but there are a lot of times people are saying things uh, about how healthcare should do things or how this is impacting healthcare and it's all false or fake. And those people have never been through what we have been through. And I think that's one of the reasons I guard those comments or I attack those comments much more fiercely than other things. Cause I I've been through that. I have, been with the family while they watched a person slowly deteriorate and i have been with the family who was like 30 minutes ago he was fine and now he's dead and the people that tend to make the most outrageous or consistent comments about what's really going on with covid tend to be people that have no idea they have never been in healthcare because i'm not saying there hasn't been any healthcare workers making comments but it's not it's far and few between and I, I think that's one of the, the reasons I was really glad we did this show, because everybody's going to have some mental health situations after this. But I think in particular, mental health for the people that worked and lived in healthcare during this time period are going to bear a special burden about how things were treated and how we responded to it. I agree. It's It's also... An incredible opportunity to desensitize to stress. And, you know, we talk about the the negatives and the positives that come from this COVID and how we've been able to reach more patients using alternative treatment methods and like e-visits or telephone or, or whatever. You know, we, our bodies can be inoculated with stress and we can be okay. And that's, and, and that's another thing too, is because there is a, there is a group of people out there and I've heard this, that have been in the ICU, they've been that ICU nurse, and they've seen all these horrific things, and they're fine. And then they start asking themselves this question, what is wrong with me? Everybody else is having this difficulty, but I'm fine. And that's okay, too, because there's something about their genetic makeup that allows them to tolerate this type of stress better. It does not make them a sociopath. Um, (laughs) Can you say that again, just to make sure? (laughs) Yeah, sure. Uh, and, and so this does not mean 
I mean, COVID-19 has an opportunity to allow us on our bad days in the future to remember what really bad days are like. Hmm. No, and the reason I said that was because, and, and jokingly, but I mean, you know, with my history, you know, being an ER nurse, but then I'm also coroner. And so I see lots of traumatic stuff that people will frequently say, I don't know how you deal with that. I don't know how you deal with that. And 95% of the time, it doesn't bother me. Now there's that 5% that does, but then it's like, it's that same feeling of like, okay, well, what the hell's wrong with me? Why does it bother me the way that everyone thinks it should bother me? Well, Tom, I think that's a great place to stop uh, this conversation initially. I mean, uh, make sure you want everybody to join us for part two uh, next week where we delve even more into it. But, you know, I had to end it with, um, I'm not a sociopath and that was important. So, <laughs> By the way, I'm pretty sure that's not a clinical diagnosis. So, I mean, there's still some work we could look into. Ah, well, damn it. All right. <laughs> <laughs> but I thought, but it was, no. I, I thought it was a really good uh, conversation about some important topics and things that, and how they're going to affect people, I guess is the best way to put it. Like, what are we going through and how we should expect it to have an effect on us? Yeah, and, and just difficult with uh, when we have Eric on the show, we went very long. And so the next half of the episodes, of course, we, we delve more into, I mean, we kind of really get deep in the next hour of the episodes after after this first half. You know, this one was kind of jovial and, and we had some fun with it. And then we, we kind of... It kind of takes a dark turn, Tom. <laughs> gets gets down into the old subconscious, maybe a little bit there. Yeah, just a little bit. But uh, uh, anyway, that's where we're going to end this episode. Um, you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, all at Just Some Podcast. Our website's www.justsomepodcast.com. Our email, admin at justsomepodcast.com. And yeah, I mean, that's where we're going to cut this off. And I mean, like I said, it was great to have Eric on. I think we determined that he's going to be our, our mental health uh, guru moving forward. <laughs> after the we played next week's episode, he may be our therapist afterwards. I mean, I, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, like he doesn't have enough to do. He needs us on the plate. <laughs> yeah, that's going to add to some problems. <laughs> then he'll need but a therapist I, for, for his for, therapy. Yeah, yeah, his yeah. therapy will be because he gave us therapy. See, yeah, it's a circle. <laughs> anyway, uh, on that note, I said, hope you enjoyed this episode. Make sure you tune in next week, also, where we continue our conversation with Eric and, and like we kind of alluded to, gets uh, a little deeper down into the subconscious next week. So, on that note, hope everybody has a wonderful week. Hey, everybody, stay safe out there. Yeah, totally subconscious. <laughs> but swearing just to pass the time. See why I am alone. I caught some road rich and I thought of you. And all the many times you say I should have known. Took a press so I could find my cheek. Find mediocrities, the best that I could do. Let's shower.
the same without you 